Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the made, one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly chronological order of publication. Um, in today's episode, we'll be looking at Shell Game. Shell Game is a story of war. It's a story of, of mental illness. It's actually one of his most, I guess, clear early works on the issue of mental illness, which is something that's going to really be in his mind a lot in the 1960s and even in some of his later 50s tales. He dealt with it before in stories such as The Builder or, I mean, to some degree, Rug, even one of his first tales. Rug is about a mentally ill dog. Um, and there's a few others, but in those, you always kind of have in the backdrop, like maybe the explanation of what's going on with a particular character is that he's he's mentally ill. This is a much clearer story that's that's really about mental illness, and the context of it is is war. So I, I think certainly Philip Dick was anti-war and anti-colonialism, and you know saw in the world he lived in overpowering nature of of the military and especially in the United States and that shapes a lot of his works and so well before the Vietnam War breaks out this was uh, published in 1954 we have here a story about the madness of war and how war leads to to um, to or is basically a form of insanity and now again I want to mention Builder here because Builder you can go back to my previous episode on Builder because this is that's an interesting story about someone with post-traumatic stress and that's leading him to build essentially an ark um, like a Noah style ark in his in his garage uh, but anyways shell game was published in galaxy magazine so so it's a rather big sale for him um, I'm kind of measuring I don't know how much he got for these particular works but I'm kind of measuring it based on the prestige of the of the magazine um, and there was a lot of science fiction fantasy magazines in the 1950s and a kind of a, a, a significant market for it, a lot more than there are now of course um, but not all of Dick's sales were to like the top ones but Galaxy is a is well known and was an important one it was published in September of 1954 uh, you can find it in the third volume of the Collected Works, uh, Collected Stories of Philip Dick, the version called Second Variety, and other classic stories by Philip Dick. So the story is called Shell Game, and it's interesting he uses this word shell, because at the time when this was written, the, the name from combat-induced post-traumatic stress was shell shock. And many people came back from the Second World War with these symptoms. Difficulty reincorporating back into their communities, difficulty interacting with their loved ones, and a lot of people then started to study this. And actually it's a pretty significant moment in the history of, of psychiatry. Um, especially, and it would, it would affect a lot of people who write about, psych, about psychiatry in the 50s and 60s. And one of the big conclusions they come to is that essentially it's the world that's sick or it's the world that's ill. 
And our mental illnesses are a reflection of, of our conditions and our environment. And one reason they started to think this was because you had people who were completely healthy go to war and they come back with problems. Um, and it must have been caused by their environment, something that they encountered. So this idea that maybe mental illness is more of a product of a sick society, not a, not a sick mind, is something that a lot of people were playing with in, in the 1960s. Okay, I'm just going to read a bit from, this is actually my book on, on Philip Dick, which has been out a few years. Um, so, at the same time, this is after uh, World War II, and, and psychiatrists started to treat uh, soldiers. But out of, um, at the same time, thinkers were attempting to understand the rise of totalitarianism and as apparent spread around the world in the forms of fascism and Stalinism. Out of this came the authoritarian personality written by a team of researchers, which found that mainstream middle-class Americans had a propensity towards authoritarian political systems and would easily be seduced by such movements if they were to emerge in the U.S. Here the claim was subtly expressed that American society, especially its beloved middle class, was sick. Around the same time, the psychiatry, psychological experiments that formed the backdrop of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision revealed that segregation was causing psycholo psychology and social difficulties among African-American children. What these findings had in common was the discovery that psychological problems had a social cause. These discoveries were, be what? These discoveries were being made and popularized during Dick's career. The three heavyweights of this anti-psychiatry movement in the United States were Ronald D. Lang, Irving Goffman, and Thomas S. Skaz. So Lang argued in The Divided Self that schizophrenia was a product of a loveless or disturbed family life as a child and therefore could not have a biochemical root that could be treated with traditional techniques like drugs and electroshock treatments. Um, and then, you know, I go on kind of at length here. But you also see this in Goffman, which looks at this, the asylum itself as a problematic institution. And then Skaz is, is, is perhaps the biggest voice in this in this tradition. He writes a book actually called The Myth of Mental Illness, uh, which goes right to the point that there really isn't any mental illness. Uh, there's just social constructs. And he was before the abolition of, of psychiatry and the did like mental illness and the asylum and all these things and, and treating these people in, in different ways. Um, so there's there's a lot going on in this history of psychiatry in the 1950s. It's a real transformative moment. And in a lot of the kind of pop psychology of the of the 60s is going to be shaped by these critiques. Now, I'm, I'm not here to make a statement one way or another about psychiatry. I, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a, I'm not a, a patient in any way. I haven't really consumed any mental health services. So I really don't know what goes on now in a psychiatrist's office. I'm just saying that at the time Dick was writing, these were some of the ideas out there. Um, and I, to, in my view, they, they've shaped how he responded to, to this question. Um, so anyways, let's get into the story shell game. Uh, so our character here is O'Keefe. He's awoken by the sound of, by sounds, he runs for his gun and sets off alarm bells for the military camp. O'Keefe reports that the enemy was attempting to pump nerve gas into his house. And then another soldier, Daniels, instructs everyone to prepare their gas masks. Horowitzki, another soldier, points out that the attacks on the camp are getting more frequent, but the failure of the radar to identify the source of most of the recent attacks suggests that there's an enemy plant within the camp. Fisher searches the road. Another soldier, Fisher, searches the road. And when he gets up, he's suspected and searched by the... The other soldiers. Horowitzki is sure that he's the one hiding something in the bog and that he's a spy for Terra. So we get a lot in here. I mean, if you're 
come back and read this after studying it, it's pretty clear that these people are all crazy. They all have their own paranoid delusions about the enemy out there. But they are apparently in some kind of war with Terra, um, with Earth, which is a common theme that Dick explores, where you have a colonial uh, society at war with, with the home country. So there's a pattern conference which runs the camp, and there's nine representatives that are there, and they're all preparing for the worst. One member is preparing a catapult for himself in the room. Another man, Silberman, is waiting, is, is wearing this elaborate suit of armor. One member reports that an earlier attack on the water supply was only the beginning, and the next attack would be a biological agent. Tate, again, another soldier, expresses doubts that the attacks are coming from terror at all, uh, and you know, and suggests maybe the remnants and survivors of the ship that brought them all to Beetlejuice is the source of these attacks. So everyone is has their own idea of what these attacks are, what their nature is, which again suggests that there's kind of a, a collective delusion here, um, although it might manifest in different ways among different characters. And they're even like technologically not in sync. Some are think thinking about catapults and armor like the Middle Ages, and some are imagining war, biological war, and, and these kinds of things. So three men are sent out to the remains of this ship from, from Beetlejuice to investigate it. Their investigation reveals that the ship was a prison ship with automated controls. Further study shows that it was more specifically a hospital ship for dangerous and paranoid psychotics. A debate is going on here uh, commences. Some doubt if they have been attacked at camp at all um, and that these five years of self-defense was actually this collective delusion one person suggests a test to prove or disprove if they are the ship of paranoids. Um, and of course, uh, that's exactly what this is, that um, they are the survivors of the shipwreck. And because they're all insane, they, they think they've been defending against it. And, and they don't even remember their own past very clearly. So the test involved examine it means examining the air collected at the attack site with the air collected at the camp and testing for hydrocyanic vapor if both are positive this will prove that they're psychotic but if both are negative they'll prove that they are paranoid so while the soldiers uh begin to report another attack but yet they see no enemy corpses they're they're fighting but no enemies uh, to speak of no bodies no dead soldiers on on either side the ruling council decides what it's going to do with this new information. Tate suggests that they turn themselves into a hospital. If they remain on this planet, they and their descendants will gradually become warlike tribes that will make war on Terra. And there's an interesting point here about such a kind of mental illness becoming hereditary. And this is something he takes up in Clans of the Alphane Moon, which is, this, in some ways, this story is a precursor of the themes we see in Clans of the Alphane Moon. But there... You basically have the descendants of psychotics and mentally ill people, and they carry on their traits. Now, I don't know if it's a biological thing as much as it's just back to this idea that we live in a psychotic world. Um, and therefore, if we're raised by psychotics, we're going to grow up with those same paranoias, right? So like the paranoia of the Cold War was something that was taught, right? It's not, yeah, America was paranoid and Americans were paranoid about Soviet attacks that were never going to happen. Yet... You know, where did that paranoia come from? Well, they were trained in it. They were taught it. They were taught it by, uh, you know, at school, hiding under your desk and all these things and taught by the parents and the news and the political system. So anyways, um, there's this fear that they'll basically, and then these people, if they were to 
continue there. They'd become these warlike tribes that would eventually make war on Terra. Half of the council begins to attack the other half, realizing that they were all Terran spies, so the delusion kind of breaks out into war. So, basically, of only Tate survives. One of the guys Tate named Tate survives this attack. Um, and there's this idea here that perhaps the test results were falsified in order to make the other make make the colony look paranoid and then surrender to Terra. So the fear was that these results were all just manipulated to engineer a surrender. So Tate, he got away and he's off in the bog hiding out and he hears the first signs of a major offensive against Earth by the members of the camp, which involve unleashing nuclear weapons on the rest of the probably deserted planet. So um, it, I guess there's a little bit of ambiguity at the end of the story, um, but it's I, I don't think there's that much. I, I, I think basically if you want to read this as it was all a, a conspiracy to try to engineer the surrender. And in fact, they're, they're continuing to fight the good fight against their enemies at the end. I guess you could read it that way. But I think I'm much more real, you know, what Dick was going. It's the same way we could read Builder and say, yeah, maybe God did really make him want to build a boat and cause the rains to come. But, you know, more likely explanation is that it, it's, it's mental illness. So um, now one lesson of Shell Game is how powerful the paranoid culture of the military can be, right? I think there's a critique here of the military. All its preparation, all its planning, all its organization is really rooted in this paranoia about other countries and other militaries and, you know, all the scheming and spy versus spy stuff that was going on in the Cold War. But also we see what a horrible psychological impact war can have on people over the long term, being constantly shot at, constantly under threat, constantly fearful of what's going to happen to you can build up into paranoia over time. And I, I don't, again, I don't really, I'm not a doctor about this. I don't, I don't really know the research on this, but you know, what is the long-term effect of being in combat on people's feelings about their own individual safety? And is it something that they train for? Is it something that's uh, dealt with in military training? It's um, just a question I have. But here we have sort of an institutionalized paranoia. The straightforward reading of the story reveals that the members of the camp really are mental patients, freed from the confinement and able to create a society that matches their temperaments. And it, we see this in Clans of the Elfane Moon really well developed, where paranoia... Well, the interesting thing in the Clans of the Elfane Moon is, like, this society is not functional. It, it's, it fight, they fight amongst themselves and they're really can't do anything but prepare for war. But in Clans of the Alfane Moon, we actually have a functioning society. The idea there is sort of like every society needs a par some paranoids. It needs some manics. It needs some depressives. It needs, you know, because it needs different classes of people. So there's the creative classes and there's the, the military. The paranoids are the military. Uh, the manics are like the artists. And you kind of need them all. And that creates kind of a functioning society. Now, but that's because there's a diversity of mental illnesses at work in that novel. Each subset, including many who are apparently not mentally ill, but categorized as, I think the, I think the people who don't exhibit mental illness are categorized simply as like um, a certain type of schizophrenia. But, um, but each plays a key role in that society they formed, separating out the paranoids here. And then we just have a group of people with paranoia that creates a much less stable situation. Um, so in a way, this is less relevant to us, uh, be, but it certainly makes for an interesting story. Now, what I found so powerful here was 
that the institutionalization institutionalized paranoia of the camp is so easily believable there are clues that something's wrong with the camp really early in the story but nothing really so unfamiliar we have armed guards protective security systems presumed guilt and infighting and all this is pretty common in our worlds and institutions too right if you ever you know like people who live in the suburbs they'll invest all this money on these protective uh systems right and subscribe to guards and you know, every building might have a guard and communities have neighborhood watches and all this is, you know, paranoia and it, it does affect people's lives, right? That like the Trayvon um, Martin case. Um, if you don't remember, Trayvon Martin was a young man in Florida, a young black man in Florida who was shot by essentially a overly paranoid neighborhood watch. Um, so this stuff really happens and we invest a lot of resources in protecting ourselves from threats that aren't really there. And certainly the U.S. military is the number one example of that. Now, the war on terror adds to our assumptions that our neighbors may not have our best interests at heart. In a way, I mean, we get Trump out of paranoid delusions about immigration and people taking our jobs and uh, foreign threats and you know, of course, much of his political career and many of his policies are organized on paranoia towards the outsider. Now, try counting the surveillance cam cameras you come across in your daily life. It's really bad here in Taiwan, where you, there's basically nowhere you can walk in the city that you're not under some form of surveillance. Now, it doesn't mean someone's actually watching, but it's always there. So what I'm trying to say here is we are in a paranoid culture. That, and this is a paranoid culture we participate in and feed in with our diverse menus of fears and worries. And in a sense, this is also a story about surveillance culture then and the surveillance state we have today. Quote from the story, the paranoia is totally rigged. His fixed ideas cannot be shaken. They dominate his life. He logically weaves all events, all people, all chance remarks and happenings into his system. He is convinced the world is plotting against him. And he is a person of unusual importance and ability against whom entire machinations are directed. To thwart these plots, their paranoid goes to infinite lengths to protect himself. Which I don't know if that's an accurate diagnosis of the paranoid. It, it's what Dick gives us in, in the context of the story as the definition of the paranoid. Now, the more controversial point here is that this idea that mental illness is inheritable. Uh, now, I don't really know if that's what he's doing here. I think the idea is just if you grow up in a paranoid culture, you're going to exhibit those paranoid uh, characters, characteristics. You know, but that's not really, it's kind of not really the point here that it's like passed on genetically. What Dick is talking about here is a culture made up entirely of paranoids, which will then recreate itself through its education and its systems without any need for genetic predispositions to certain mental illnesses. Um, and again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know the science behind this, but, you know, is, you know, I'm pretty sure scientists have begun to separate what's the environmental and what's the genetic causes of, of certain um, mental illnesses. We do know things like depression are inheritable to a degree. Like if your parents are depressed, you're more likely to have depression. But is that because you grew up with a depressed person and the family had a kind of a culture of depression or is it is it something in your genes? Dick certainly wouldn't have known that distinction for, for, you know, for Dick, he's much more of the 1950s theories about mental illness, which see them as products of a sick society. So Dick imagines that the paranoids may one day, if large enough in force, be the ultimate military force as well. And this is a thing he develops in Clans of the Elfane Moon quite brilliantly, where there's a whole, you know, 
the paranoids become the best military because they're always preparing for war. Do mil militaries teach paranoia to soldiers as a means to promote effectiveness? Uh, maybe uh, that's something we can talk about. Um, but we do know now in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been studies and I've read articles on this talking about the training of police and how police are trained to be fearful of the communities that they're supposed to serve. And that's one of the reasons we have so much, uh, so many police shootings in the United States. So I just pulled up this article. It's, it's from a few years ago. It's Seth Stoughton, How Police Training Contributes to Avoidable Deaths. It's in the Atlantic. Um, and so he says, the author, having served as an officer at a large municipal police department and now as a scholar who researches policing, I am intimately familiar with police training. I'm not just relying on my own experience, though. I have had long conversations with officers and former officers, including firearms trainees and the use of force instructors at law enforcement agencies across our country. And they've all led to one conclusion. American police officers are among the best trained in the world, but what they're trained to do is part of the problem. Police training starts in the academy where the concept of officer safety is so heavily emphasized that it takes on almost religious significance. Rookie officers are taught what is widely known as the first rule of law enforcement. An officer's overriding goal every day is to go home at the end of their shift. But cops live in a hostile world. They learn that every encounter, every individual is a potential threat. And they always have to be on their guard because, as cops often say, complacency kills. Officers aren't just told about risks they face. They're shown painfully vivid, heart-wrenching dash cam footage of officers being beaten, disarmed, or gunned down after a moment of inattention or hesitation. They are told that the primary culprit isn't the felon on the film. It's the officer's lack of vigilance. And as they listen to the fallen officer's last desperate radio cries for help, every cop in the room is thinking exactly the same thing. I won't ever let that happen to me. That is the point of the training. And the article goes on. It's, it's a really long article, but you get the idea here. So the criticism is that it creates a, a class of paranoid armed men and women on our streets patrolling our neighborhoods. Now, if that's not paranoia, I, I don't know what is. Uh, so it's a kind of an institutionalized paranoia. Yeah, and, I, and it, I'm, I understand that there is a clinical definition of paranoia as well. But I'm kind of on Dick's side here that I think we should look at this both institutionally and systemically as well as something pathological or clinical or something that, that can be treated. I mean, this, this can't be treated with psychoanalysis, right? I mean, I guess you could bring a police officer uh, and pick their brain, um, but that's not going to fix the problem, right? What you got to do is, is transform the culture or the institutions in such a way that they become less paranoid. So I, I guess that does it for this episode. I, I've said sort of what I wanted to say about Shell Game. It's a, it's a really great story, and you want to read it alongside Clans of the Elfane Moon. And even things like Dr. Futurity and other books that kind of try to get at a sick society. Uh, to some degree, many of Dick's works get at this question, but, but it's Clans of the Elfane Moon that it develops it most thoroughly. Um, so anyways, thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed this episode and talking about this this really interesting story. If you have any comments on on how Dick portrays mental illness, please leave them below. Um, I'll try to respond to them in a future episode. Uh, so again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'll be back very shortly with another episode where we'll be looking at Upon the Dull Earth. Come and possess my tired thoughts once more. That leaving dies, that leaving dies.
eyes that leave 